Welcome to Managed Care Cast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Maggie Shaw, editor for the American Journal of Managed Care. In 2018, the FDA approved a record 66 novel drugs. Among them were cancer treatments, orphan drugs for rare diseases, drugs under expedited review, and biosimilars. However, access to each of these drugs for patients covered by different health plans was not uniform. On this episode of Managed Care Cast, we speak with Ari Panzer, a Master of Public Policy candidate at Duke University and lead author of Patients' Access to 2018 FDA-Approved Drugs, One-Year Post-Approval, which was published in the April issue of the American Journal of Managed Care. He delves into why it's important to ensure patients receive optimal treatment and maximize their outcomes, understanding why health plans vary in their coverage decisions despite having access to the same evidence, and the difficulty of striking the right balance between drug access, cost, and coverage to ensure patients can get the drug therapies they require when appropriate. Thank you for joining us today, Ari. Before we begin, can you introduce yourself and tell us about your work? Sure. So my name is Ari Panzer. Um, at the time that uh, we did this study, I was a researcher at Tufts Medical Center uh, in the Center for the Evaluation of Value and Risk in Health, or CVER for short. And I was working with uh, a group that uh, was led by Dr. James Chambers, who heads up the specialty drug evidence and coverage database, um, the, the SPEC database. And the group's really interested in trying to understand how health, commercial health plans uh, and health plans in general in the U.S. are covering specialty products um, and how patient access varies across health plans. And so this, uh, this work looking at how health plans cover the 2018 approvals uh, was part of that effort to try to understand the broader coverage landscape and how health plans make these decisions. Can you provide a brief background of your study why did you decide to investigate patient access to the 66 drugs approved by the FDA in 2018, as well as formularies and coverage policies as separate entities? So the background to the study is we've done a number of of different uh, studies looking at these different pieces, trying to understand across several health plans, all the, the specialty drugs that we've looked at, like in general, how do plans cover these drugs? Um, and trying to uh, run regression analyses to understand which factors influence plan decision making. And we've seen things that like cost matters and prevalence matters, um, whether there's a cancer indication and that can matter and all of these different factors can influence plan decision making. One of the pieces though, that always comes back to us is, well, if drugs have been in the market for a longer time, then they may have a different evidence base, more demonstration and real world evidence that these drugs are effective in clinical practice. Plan, different plans also are contracting with manufacturers in different ways. So there are a lot of time elements that can also influence uh, health plan coverage. And while we do account for that by uh, controlling for time in the market, being able to take one year's set of drugs and look at coverage exactly one year out standardizes that time element. 
And so we remove some of that, uh, some of, some of the, those elements that could also be influencing it that we may not be really controlling for because there may not be a great way to do that. So that led us to, we've, we always had this idea of, oh, it'd be great if we could track health plan coverage of a single set of drugs that were kind of approved in a similar time for the same exact amount of time. And when FDA approved these 66 drugs and it was the most drugs that were approved um, in that in a year in that uh, way, then it was an opportunity for us to take a large sample of drug approvals and track coverage over time um, and see exactly one year to the date from approval, how were health plans covering that drug? How were they adopting this novel technology? And what did that mean for patient access? Um, so that was sort of the motivation for these 66 drugs at this time. Um, and that's exactly what we were able to do. And for the second part of the question, the reason for formularies and coverage policies set as separate entities is they contain different sets of information. Health plans typically will issue formularies for drugs that are covered through the pharmacy benefit, and typically will issue more formal coverage policies with more detail um, it, for drugs that are covered through the medical benefit. Now, that's not exclusive. They'll sometimes include a medical benefit drug on a formulary, and they'll sometimes include um, a coverage policy for a pharmacy benefit drug for various reasons. Um, but in general, that, that is the approach, which means if there's incomparable information in them, then it's hard to compare coverage uh, in, from the pharmacy benefit and from the medical benefit. Um, so for instance, in a, in a coverage policy, you'll often get the, the health plan's specific language around this drug is, is medically deemed medically necessary for patients with the following uh, criteria or that meet the following criteria. And it will list out the age, it will list out the severity, it will list out um, whether there are any drugs that a patient has to step through. Um, if there's a step therapy protocol, um, they'll have other information in there too, such as reauthorization criteria. So there's a lot more detail. Whereas in a formulary, it may just say that there is a prior off. It may say there is a step therapy. It doesn't tell you the detail around, well, what is that step therapy? Um, either in a prior off, it may just be you have to fill out the form. It may not be that there is some sort of clinical restriction. Um, so we don't have the same level of detail and, and it's not easily comparable in that way. What is the reasoning behind placing restrictions on coverage policies and utilization and management of formularies? And can you discuss why plan restrictions sometimes exceed a drug's FDA label indication? Yeah, so there are a lot of reasons why plans may place restrictions on drugs. Um, and, and not all of them are bad reasons. Uh, a lot of times I think, you know, we hear coverage restrictions and uh, limitations in access. And in some cases, that's a bad thing. In some cases, that may not be such a bad thing. Um, for health plans, they have a, a difficult task, which is they have all of these drugs and they have to figure out for their members, what are they covering? Because they can't cover everything fully. Um, and so they have to make decisions informed by evidence, informed by their members, correct uh, characteristics, informed by kind of what uh, the, the deals that they're able to strike with manufacturers to figure out what's the actual cost that they are paying for a drug, um, how they prioritize access. Um, and that is a, a very complicated and challenging uh, process. Um, and so that's, in, in some ways, these utilization management criteria allows health plans to determine what is best for them to prioritize and then try to direct access through these coverage um, restrictions. Uh, and sometimes uh, there's 
there are restrictions that are applied that are maybe more questionable. And it's like, okay, this is clearly the manufacturer struck a deal and this is what they're prioritizing. So we see that more so uh, in um, drug classes where there are a lot of drugs with pretty comparable evidence to suggest they have similar benefit. And what really determines um, what health plans are prioritizing is what, uh, what, how much are they paying uh, for that drug? So there's more negotiation around that. Um, and so we tend to see a lot of step therapy protocols around the immune modulating drugs for things like RA, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, and uh, multiple sclerosis. Um, we tend to see less when there aren't so many drugs available. Um, and, uh, but but it, it does depend. We've still seen for, for orphan drugs that there are fewer treatments available. It's a very narrow patient population. We increasingly see that um, health plans are applying these restrictions. and. Um, it's, you know, it's likely a budgetary thing. They, they have to, they can't afford to cover everything. And as we, we saw with the Agilehelm approval, um, sometimes plans have to deal with uh, evidence that may not be enough for them to feel comfortable covering a drug or covering it in the way that the FDA has approved. The FDA, they're looking at evidence to see, to, is, it, is a drug safe and effective? They're not necessarily looking to see, is it safer, more effective than a comparable drug on the market? Is it going to be more cost effective than a drug in the market? The FDA is not looking at that. The plans have to look at that information. And so they may arrive at a different decision than FDA in terms of who this, this drug, uh, who, who should have access to this drug within their patient population. Yeah, a lot of reasons why um, plans may apply these restrictions. And for us, and we're really trying to really understand well, why do patients, why, why do health plans apply the restrictions in the way that they do? Um, is it really primarily driven by cost? Are there these other factors that are influencing it? Um, and the ways that different plans may weigh certain evidence could lead them to making different decisions. For drugs that were approved in 2018 for several indications, could considering each drug indication pair have skewed your results in any way? Yeah, it's a good question. So the vast majority of our data points here were single drugs approved for single indication. That most of the time, a new drug is approved for only one indication. Most of the times that uh, it was uh, a drug is approved for multiple indications, um, it was actually a biosimilar that had been approved, um, which we felt it was important to capture these biosimilars. Um, but they also are approved through a slightly different pathway. So they're not eligible for orphan status in the same way. They're, um, initially, they're not off, uh, eligible for um, expedited approval um, pathways. Um, so it, it, it's unlikely that there was uh, any skewing because it was such a small number. Um, if there was, it probably would make some of what our findings even stronger, um, where um, drugs that were included, uh, that were orphan, uh, Orphan drugs, we, we already saw they were less likely to have coverage restrictions. Um, and so if we had taken out the biosimilars, which biosimilars tend to are, are to, have to be less likely to have coverage restrictions, uh, is what we saw, then you would maybe expect that number to increase a little bit and, and see a little bit of a stronger effect. Um, so uh, unlikely to ask you the results, but if they had and if it had any influence, it may have just made the, the results stronger. So it's probably dampening the effects that we're seeing, if anything. Your principal conclusion was that several drug categories, cancer treatments, orphan drugs, biosimilars, had fewer coverage restrictions and that health insurance coverage varied among plans for the 66 drugs approved by the FDA in 2018. 
Can you elaborate on why these specific results were seen? Also on why decisions regarding the same drug may differ among coverage providers? Yeah, so we, we see similar things across our other studies. Um, in our the regression analyses, we've seen that health plans tend to treat cancer treatments differently. Um, they're far less likely to apply coverage restrictions. And when they do, the types of coverage restrictions may vary. Um, so for, for whatever reason, and probably very good reasons with cancer treatments, where a lot of times it's kind of a last resort option for patients, particularly these very expensive specialty cancer treatments. Um, and so plans seem to be less likely to, cut, to apply coverage restrictions uh, at all to cancer treatments. Um, so that's not surprising to see that uh, in this data set. Orphan drugs, we've seen um, in, in our analysis as well, plans are less likely to apply coverage restrictions to drugs that have smaller patient populations. Um, in some ways that makes sense too, where if you have a smaller population where it's covered, then it may, there may be a lower budget, budget impact. Um, of course, you have to bring cost into that to, to, uh, to make sure that you know, it's a drug that may be very expensive for a small patient population. So it, it may not, uh, that may not hold uh, all the time, but in general, orphan drugs, plans tend to be more generous in their coverage than non-orphan drugs. Biosimilars, and biosimilars still tend to be a little bit less expensive than the originator product. And so plans may be more likely to cover that biosimilar relative to the uh, originator product. So we may see that they're, they're actually not applying coverage restrictions to the biosimilar. They may be more likely to apply, uh, start applying coverage restrictions if they're going to, to that innovator product. Um, so all of these findings I think, tend to make sense with what we know about the landscape, what we know about how health plans make these decisions. Um, it's interesting to see these trends hold for this particular sample and, and see that they are, it's very similar to what we see in our big analyses of drugs that have been on the market from one year to 10, 15 years plus, and we still see these effects. Um, so it seems to be pretty durable across different samples. For why health plans may make different decisions um, it, it's a good question. And it's something that we've been trying to understand. Why do health plans make such different decisions when they have the same evidence available? It probably comes down to a few different things. One is that health plans may be paying different amounts for the same products. And so health plans that may be able to negotiate a lower price may be more likely to cover something more favorably than a health plan that may not have as much negotiating power or that has, uh, you know, if there are different relationships with the manufacturers, then maybe that could influence it. I mean, there are many, many different ways and that interaction happens behind closed doors. And so we don't know what goes into those negotiations and, and what influences uh, how coverage is ultimately um, promulgated. Another aspect of it is the, the evidence. Some health plans may weigh certain evidence more strongly than others. So health plans that really value real world evidence in formulating their coverage policies may be less likely to provide uh, coverage at, at the same level of the FDA if there's no real world evidence available yet. And so these products early, early in their life cycle with very little real world evidence, unless there was a real world evidence study that led to the approval, if it was an orphan drug, for example, um, plans may struggle to, to or grapple with how do we cover this? What is appropriate? What is medically necessary 
Um, again, FDA may have said safe and effective, but for their patient population, considering the cost, considering the other treatments available, what, what is the appropriate level of coverage? And it may mean covering for a more narrow population than how FDA approved it, whereas other payers may not have that same um, hesitancy to cover. Um, so different reasons why health plans may do different things. What are the most important lessons regarding drug coverage that health insurance plans can take away from your findings? And what could be their next steps going forward on communicating coverage decisions to plan participants? Yeah, I, I think one, one of the important findings from what we did is just understanding how often do health plans communicate coverage at all. And we saw that the vast majority of the time they do include some communication of coverage, whether it be through a coverage policy or through a formulary. Um, and that helps patients and, and providers know, well, what drugs are available to them for a particular condition. And oftentimes you have a novel drug that's approved and there's a lot of excitement around it. Um, but there's also a lot of uncertainty of how our health plans covering these products. And so by uh, being transparent in decision-making um, that can help guide patients can help guide providers and make sure that um, everybody's on the same page of what, what is available. Because if patients don't have coverage, then most don't have access. Um, so novel drug approval is great, but unless patients get access and have coverage, then they're not getting access to that drug most of the time. Um, and, and so um, understanding and communicating their coverage positions uh, and being transparent in that manner can be very important for patients um, as well as providers. And so, you know, in terms of what we've seen with, you know, plans doing different things and some including information and coverage policies and some in formularies, there's different levels of information there too. And so knowing what's on a formulary could be helpful, but that doesn't tell you everything either. And so providing the more detailed coverage can um, let patients know yeah, you're likely to have coverage uh, for this particular drug for your condition or not. Um, and that also, again, helps guide physicians in, in, in prescribing the right drug the first time. Um, so a lot of times if patients are prescribed a drug that the physician thinks, oh, it's a new drug, it's approved, great. And then you, know, you submit for prior authorization, you find it's, it's rejected, um, or you'll treat the patient and then you'll uh, submit after the fact. And then all of a sudden you find it's not covered and they have to switch um, patient off of a drug, um, and that's not optimal for patients. Um, that's not optimal for physicians. Um, but the more information that patients and physicians have earlier, the, the better. And on the evidence side, it speaks to um, trying to align the evidence base that's generated. Um, health plans may have different needs and requirements uh, to covering a drug than FDA. And so the evidence that they are looking for and trying to make these decisions, um, it may look different. It may involve a different type of study. So the earlier those conversations begin about, look, if this is what we're looking for, this type of study, this demonstration of safety of efficacy, um, that can maybe help as well, because then you have evidence available that plans can make decisions on, be more actionable on, and they may feel more comfortable providing coverage if they know, okay, we've seen this evidence demonstrated in the manner that we are uh, comfortable with. Um, so I think those are all important takeaways here. Um, so, you know, transparency is important and, and alignment and evidence generation, making sure that evidence is available is important. Um, so yeah, I think those are probably two, two key takeaways. 
that was the last question I had for you. Are there any concluding thoughts you would like to add? You know, I think we we talk a lot um, within the spec group about you know, what motivation behind all this work. And, and the example that we often go to is you have two patients who look exactly the same, they have the same clinical criteria, the same age, the same socioeconomic status, everything's the same except for their insurance. And so they, they have to be treated in different ways. They have different access to drugs. And um, it's in some ways that's the motivation here is why, why should access be different for patients that look the same? Because that means physicians have to practice in a different way, even if they, in their clinical expertise, um, and, and they, they have to treat patients differently. And that, you know, is that optimal for patients? Is that optimal for physicians? And this is just another, another study that's kind of getting at that question of how, how can we make sure that patients are receiving the optimal um, treatments, maximizing health outcomes, while also acknowledging that there's a cost element here. We can't cover everything for everyone. We can't provide all of the medical services that everybody wants. Um, and health plans have an important role in serving as a gatekeeper to um, to medical technology that may not be the most effective anymore. It may be effective and safe in, in the eyes of FDA, but there may be times where plans need to step in and say, no, we're going to guide patients in this different direction um, and try to make sure that they are receiving the, the safest, the most effective, and the most cost-effective um, therapy out there. Um, and so I always go back to that example of you have these two patients, and, and really it's about the patients. Um, and making sure that they have access to the, the therapies that they need when it's appropriate. It, it can be difficult to step out from the minutia of the data and from, you know, step out of the weeds here um, and really come back to what are we talking about? And that's patients and access to the drugs that they need and really the, the, the challenging environment that uh, regulatory agencies and payers and patients and physicians have to navigate around coverage of these very expensive, but also often very effective drugs. Um, it's something I think we're all grappling with in health policy of how do we uh, strike the right balance between access and cost and coverage. Um, so something I think we're all still working on. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. We really do appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the time. For all of us at AJMC.com, thanks for listening. To learn more about this issue, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.